help them go off on their trip in the form of checks. And if you've done that, they have thank you notes for you on the table. They wrote them out to each person. And so uh, if you can remember, go back there. If you're in this category, find your name, and it'll be a personal thank you from that organization. They left this morning from the cross at 5 o'clock, and they're on their bikes all the way to Sturgis, going through several states. It's the largest gathering of bikers in the world. They witness along the way. They don't wait till they get to Sturgis, and when they get to Sturgis, they'll meet up with another 100 or so hell fighters, and they have a very, very planned week. They don't sit around. They are very strategic in their outreach, and uh, they will come back, Lord willing, safely and tell us uh, what he has done through them. So please remember to pray for the health fighters. I ask them to come and give us a report uh, when they return. Anyway, thank you notes are on that back table. They told me, based on the gifts given by our three classes, you are the third, uh, yours and the first two, they received enough help to uh, have all of their fuel costs paid there and back, and also their hotel accommodations there and back, just from our three classes spur of the moment. So that is wonderful. And one of the guys was crying. He was so touched by it, and I told him, he's got to stop doing that. He's a biker. (laughs) He is blowing his cover. (laughs) Be a man, I told him. And so anyway, kind of a cool deal. Well, wonderful to see you. So do you believe in God's grace? Yes, so why do we fight it the way we do? Answer me this question. Why is it so hard for people to live in the atmosphere of God's grace? What are your thoughts about that? Anyone have a notion? Yes. Yeah, human pride, isn't it? Thank you, God, but I want to contribute. (laughs) So I can take credit. That's a very good observation. Pride is at the heart of it. Any, any other thoughts about it? Why we resist God's grace? Yes, Mary. Uh, that's a good point. Just Nice, Mary. So just flat out not understanding what God's grace is involved. Yeah, that's great. Rex? See, now that's a good one. Rex said, we listen to outside influences. You hear the clear voice of the God of all grace. Uh, You've received it in one way or another, but there, there, there are distracting voices. In fact, that's exactly what the problem was here in Galatia, which we have been so painstakingly going through. I think it frustrated Paul. His voice reflected the voice of the God of all grace. He was an apostle, spoke with the authority of an apostle, with accuracy, proclaimed God's truth. Galatians heard it and were set free. But there were other voices, distracting voices, tripping them up. So we spoke about this last week. They got off to a good start, the Galatians did, here with the first aspect of salvation, justification. They accepted Christ, and boom, as an event, they were declared to be in right standing with God. This past aspect of salvation, we spoke about this, dealt with the penalty of their sin. 
but that's not all. Then there's a present aspect of salvation. We can call it sanctification. It, unlike justification, it's not a one-time event. This is what we do. This is our life as Christians, maturing, coming to be more like Christ, growing in the faith. doesn't happen overnight. That's a process of sanctification. If justification, the past aspect of salvation, addressed the penalty of sin, sanctification, the present process of growing in Christ, it addresses the power of sin. It had total mastery over us, but now, inhabited by God's Spirit, we have some new enablements to keep us from being under bondage to sin. But then there's a third and final aspect of salvation, is the future aspect, called glorification. That, too, is an event. One day we come into glorified bodies, fit for eternity. If justification addressed the penalty of sin, sanctification the power of sin, glorification addresses the literal presence of sin. It's still in us, folks. It'll be great one day for it to be out of us. And one of the uh, indications that we are sin-free is that we have a body no longer subject to deterioration, aging, or decay. It's a body fit for eternity. We're not there yet. We're here in the middle uh, aspect or phase of salvation. Now the Galatians got off to a good start right back here, justification. They came to uh, be right with God the same way you and I did, by accepting the merits of Christ by faith, by his grace. But now they got to the second phase of salvation, the process of growing in Christ. Now they're getting tripped up because they're doing, as Rex indicated, they're listening to other voices, voices they should not be listening to. Those voices were the Judaizers, Jewish people unsaved, under the law of Moses. They were wise enough not to challenge the Jesus of these Galatians, who were Gentile believers, by the way. They didn't take away Jesus. They said you have to add to what he's done. You can have your Jesus, but Jesus is not enough. What he did on the cross for you is not sufficient to provide atonement for your sin. So you have to add to it different things. You have to get under the law of Moses. Now, this whole notion is a little crazy because the law of Moses was never even given to Gentiles. And here's what's make it, what makes it doubly crazy. The Jews, who were recipients of the law of Moses, couldn't live by it. <laughs> and now they're passing it on to the Gentiles. That makes no sense. Now, the gateway into the law of Moses was something called circumcision. So that is a point of emphasis, as we've seen in Galatians. The Judaizers were telling these new Galatian Gentile believers Faith in Jesus is good, but not good enough. You have to add to it circumcision. Faith plus circumcision. That's the situation. Paul goes crazy. And I'm not exaggerating. He goes nuts. He is really, really upset. You can understand why. Here's a guy who lived under the law better than most. He was Mr. Big Shot Rabbi. When it came to righteousness by the law, if anyone could attain to it, he would, but he didn't. He was knocked off his prideful pedestal one day, almost literally, on his way to persecute Christians, and he found out that this Jesus is enough, and that Paul's efforts to be worthy of God's right standing was not enough. When, when do you do enough of the law of Moses? When do you fast enough? When do you bow down enough? When, do you, when, when is enough enough? And he found out what Jesus did is enough. I can rest now. I can enter into Sabbath rest. I can rest from my works. Because Jesus paid it all. Now he's incensed. When those who have found freedom in Christ 
are being assaulted by strange voices trying to rob their freedom. So he wrote Galatians. That's what it's all about. We've been trekking through his argumentation. Last week we started at the beginning of chapter 5. Just to refresh your memory, we looked at the first four verses. Paul says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He said, behold, I, Paul, he's claiming apostolic authority there. I say to you, if you've received circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit. Now, someone might say, Paul, why are you making such a big deal? Oh, come on. Just let him get circumcised. Let's get on with our lives here. No, Paul says, if you do this, then you are devaluing the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. Therefore, he's of no value to you. It's either all of God's grace or nothing. It can't be your works plus Christ's atoning sacrifice. It has to be one or the other. In fact, he says, verse 3, Uh, I just tell you this, every man who receives circumcision will be under obligation to keep the whole law. See, Paul knew it's a package deal. You can't choose those aspects of human effort, ethics, the law, in this case of Moses, that you want to live by. No, it's a package deal. You either accept the fact that Christ took care of it for you by suffering and dying on the cross, or else you live by every aspect of the law in your own strength in order to get God to back off give you some good grades instead of failing grades. It's a package deal. And then he says, this was the controversial verse we spent a lot of time on, you've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. And I made the case that uh, this is not talking about the loss of salvation. There's no place in any of the six chapters of Galatians that Paul responds to these Galatians in any way except that they be believers. It does not say they have fallen from salvation. It says they've fallen from grace, and you and I can do it too. Look, they got off to a good start. They're justified. They get the declaration of being in right standing with God through the merits of Christ. And then in the process of sanctification, they remove themselves from the sphere of God's grace, and now they're working to sustain their salvation. They're listening to the voices of the Judaizers. They did not lose their salvation. I'll tell you what they lost. They lost the joy of their salvation. There's nothing more miserable than a miserable Christian who thinks, though he or she has been saved by grace, they've got to work at it in order to preserve it. There's nothing more than that's the most miserable person on earth. You're like on a treadmill. You're insecure. You're hopeless. You never know when you've done enough. So that's what Paul's talking about. Okay, that's what's going on. Now we pick it up. Verse 5. For we, now I've got to stop you right there. But that means contrast. There's we versus the non-we. He's been speaking about the non-we. Those are the Judaizers working for their salvation, living under the insecurity of never knowing when you've done enough. And he says, no, that's not us. For we, now how, how is the we? Those who are accepting God's grace through faith, being redeemed. How, how, how does the we, how does their experience differ from the non-we here? We through the spirit. Look at that. Not through the flesh. Through the Spirit, by faith. Not by works, by faith. You see the, see the contrast? We, through the Spirit, by faith, are what? We're waiting. For what? The hope of righteousness. The we have the Spirit of God inside. The we are justified by faith, not by works. The we are hopeful that in the end, when they stand before God, he will pronounce a verdict of acquittal, case dismissed. We will have our righteousness declared in front of the whole world. So back here at justification, God said, you have right standing with me. But there's going to come a time 
when the world stands before Almighty God to be judged. You're approaching the bar uh, behind which sits the king of kings. He says, how do you plea? And you say, guilty. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. However, I have accepted the substitutionary sacrifice offering of your son on my behalf. My sins were transferred onto his shoulders. He died for me. When he finished, he said, it is finished, paid in full. I claim the merits of Christ. And the father says, case dismissed. Enter into eternal bliss, and he declares you to be in right standing before the entire world. That's the hope we, who are under grace, still have. Now, you don't get up to him and you say, oh, God, you know, I've done the best I can. Uh, I'm not as bad as, uh, you know, the guy I'm sitting next to right now. He or she is a real reprobate. You know, my goodness. So, I mean, in comparison to that person... I got it licked. You don't say, I've done the best I can. I've gone on missions trips to places I didn't even want to go. I, uh, I come to Bible study, even when Chuck Schneider is teaching. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm paying the price, God. I'm paying the price. You know, I'm doing all this kind of... No, no. When you, no, the we gets before him. And you, you know what? You, you say, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And the father says, boom, gavel goes down. You get an acquittal, case dismissed, enter into eternal bliss. That's the experience of those who stay in the atmosphere of God's grace. Hope, faith, spirit-produced transformation from the inside, not religiously imposed external do's and don'ts that nobody could live by perfectly. Okay, that's what he's talking about over there. Now, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Let me back up just for a second because I want to talk to you about this because it's the third hour. Third to- we, third, we do this three times. And by this time, we are temporarily insane. <laughs> we'll rest up. We'll be okay for next week. But by the third hour, we don't know what we're saying. So we, you just say it. So here we go. Uh, the Christian like the Galatians, who are justified but insecure about their standing with God, they doubt their salvation. That happens. That's understandable. Um, I'm going to make up a scenario. So if any of you here think, oh, he's talking about me, don't think so highly of yourself. (laughs) No, I'm not. It's just a composite. Uh, I've been in the ministry for uh, a, a long time. And so this particular situation has come to me, but to any minister, many times. It's a person unsure of their salvation, and they're coming for help. They have no peace. So, uh, again, this is a composite picture. I'll make it, let's say it's a male, I'll just say, uh, who, who came to me. I say, What's, how can I help you? Well, I've just, uh, I, I, I'm just not sure that I'm saved. Now, you might say, well, Stuart, this is going to be a quick visit. All you have to do is lead that person again in the sinner's prayer. You'd still just nail it down. You'll be sure. Yeah, but what if that person already prayed the sinner's prayer one time, meant it? You're getting them to go through those motions again. It didn't work the first time. So I feel a little funny about that. 
So I like to do a little diagnostic work first to make sure I'm not misdiagnosing the person's issue. Because you could think it's a theological matter when maybe it's not. For instance, I could say to this person, um, why did you come here today? And that person could say, well, because this is my church. I'm a, I'm a member of this church. Hmm. You can be an unsaved person, become a committed member of a church, but I don't know. Not likely. Then I say to the person, why did you come in? You, why are you concerned about this matter of your salvation? What do you mean? I'm concerned about it. I want, I want to make sure I'm right with God. And how many unsaved people do you know who are concerned about the matter of their salvation? Frankly, most don't even know it should matter. That's your job to tell them. To me, one of the marks of salvation is interesting. You hang out with other saved people. You're a member of a church. Another mark of salvation. Evidence. I'm not saying this proves the case. I'm just saying this builds a case for it. Another evidence of it is that uh, you're concerned about your salvation. And then maybe I said to this person, so this has been your church. Uh, it's beautiful. Look, facility, beautiful facility. Have you contributed to it? Absolutely. I'm a regular giver. Hmm. You can be unsaved and put money in the offering plate, but I'm putting together this total package. Here's a person who's a committed member of the church, is concerned about his salvation, is a regular giver. And I might say to that person, why'd you come see me? I value the way you handle God's word. Can you please tell me one non-Christian who at the point of making a decision seeks the counsel of someone who handles God's word well? That's not, that's not on the roadmap for a non-believer. So this person is showing me more evidence that they are regenerated, seeking the counsel from a person perceived to be a godly person. And then I might say to the person, hey, I'm just wondering, have you spoken to God about this? And that person may say, I pray all the time. Well, non-believers can pray, I guess. But I'm putting together the whole package. Here's a guy who's a praying guy. Oh, and I say, by the way, I noticed you didn't come empty-handed. What is that you're carrying? What did you bring with you? Oh, that's my Bible. Did you say my Bible, personal possessive pronoun? Yeah, that's my Bible. Oh, that's your Bible. Do you read it? It doesn't look new to me. Oh, it's not new. I've had it for years. Is it marked up? Is, are, are things underlined? I, I notice things are underlined, the different colored markers. Who did that? Well, that's me. I do that whenever I listen. You know, I underline things. Does a non-believer underline things in the Bible? <laughs> then I might say to this person, uh, do you have kids, grandkids? Oh, yeah, I got both. What's your concern, let's say, for your grandkids? Oh, I want them to come to know the Lord at an early age. Uh, you pray that for them? Oh, I pray all the time. Do you know a non-believer who's praying for the salvation of his or her grandkids? That person has not saved themselves, does not value it at all. Why would that person pray for the salvation of their grandkids? Here's my point. I put it all together, and I say uh, the evidence, the cumulative case here is in favor of the fact that this guy is saved, is regenerated. So the theological matter is not a theological matter because this guy probably knows enough 
as many verses on assurance of salvation as I do. Now, I know the typical approach is let me give you eight verses on assurance of salvation. But he can probably quote them. So what's up? It's not theological in a case like that, his problem. It's emotional. So then I might say to this person, this is a little weird, but bear with me. What's your father like? And that person looks at me like I'm out to lunch. What's my father got to do with it? And then I might say, let me just take a shot. Let me describe your dad. And the person might say, you don't even know my dad. Maybe. I said, your dad was probably someone who was there, but not necessarily there. He was there, but not closely connected to you. Your dad was probably someone whom, if he loved you, probably expressed it in material or concrete ways, but not with hugs, and probably never said, I love you, you're my son. Your dad was probably someone who, if you brought home a report card and I uh, had five courses and you got four A's and one B. Your dad is probably someone who only saw the B. You could do better, your dad probably said to you. <clears throat> I've had people say, oh, my goodness, that's my dad. I know this. Why? Because I'll tell you what that person has done. That person does not have a theological issue. That person is conforming unseen heavenly father to the image of visible earthly father. So I would usually tell that person, you got two things you need to do. One, you have to forgive your earthly dad. One time a guy said, yeah, but he's dead. But forgiveness is not about your dad. It's about you getting freedom. Let your dad off your hook. Second, you have to apologize to your heavenly dad. Apologize for what? Making him out to be like your earthly dad. He's different. He's categorically different. I know we use the same terminology, our Father who art in heaven, but our Father who art in heaven is categorically different than even the best dad anyone here may have had. It's not the same. So I usually tell people, here's what you need to do. Stop wrestling with this issue. You're as saved as saved could be. Any one of these things is of that we saw in your life is of divine origin. Uh, this is evidence of your salvation. You're just struggling with this middle procedure of sanctification and you're looking for ways <laughs> to win God's favor you believe you have God's favor here at the entrance into salvation justification you believe that's all of God's favor but now you think as you live your life you don't have God's favor and you got to keep earning it by doing stuff whatever it is and it may be good stuff like circumcision circumcision is not a bad thing God speaks about it in the Bible it may be, I don't know what, just make a list of stuff. They could all be good things, but they come not to be good because you're really, really doubting what God has made clear. And he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And he said, if you've accepted Christ, you've done everything you need to do in order to be right with me. That's it. It's not Jesus plus anything. If it's Jesus plus anything, Paul says, then Christ is of no longer any value to you. So that has been my experience, I would say, uh, not 90% of the time, 100% of the time, when a, it's a believer, there's evidence of salvation, downing his or her salvation, uh, it can always be traced back to the dad. Always. I'm not trying to blame the dad. I'm trying to explain the struggle the person said. So they translate it into a theological matter where it has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that.
So here's the point. Paul says, the we, we who are saved, are unlike the others. We don't go through those motions. We, filled with God's Spirit, have faith that leads us to a hopeful expectation that when we stand before God, the right standing he bequeathed to us by faith, he will confirm before the whole world when we stand before him. That's what a healthy believer is experiencing. If you're not the healthy believer, I don't think you need to see one of the pastors. You need to see one of our counselors. And don't be ashamed about it. Because I'll tell you what the pastors are going to do. They're going to give you more Bible verses. You already know a ton of them. <laughs> you, need to someone, you need someone to help you deal with developmental woundedness that you've not gotten over yet. Uh, uh, and by the way, that's as spiritual an activity as being in Bible study here today, growing to be more like Christ and to be free from these unresolved issues in the past. A good Christian counselor can help you through those things. Otherwise, I'm afraid some pastors may be misdiagnosed the problem. So they'll get you saying the prayer again. They'll get you being baptized again. What'd that do? I don't know. I hope it did something. But the real issue is, did Jesus do it all or almost all? If it's almost all, how many times are you going to get baptized? Now, that's just my particular accurate perspective. <laughs> so now Paul says, neither circum in, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It's not saying these things are frivolous or unimportant. He's just saying with regard to, to the matter of salvation, they don't matter, and you can fill in the blank. I could put baptism in there. Now, this is getting me fired in the Baptist church, but I don't really care because I'm old enough now at this point. Okay, so fire me. So, so, so folks, I want to, it's not that we denigrate baptism, but uh, 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 substituting it for circumcision. But when we add baptism to the salvation equation, we're missing the point. It doesn't matter. You know what matters? Just what Paul says there. In Christ Jesus, what matters is faith working through love. That's what he says. It's not any of these practices. It's nothing like that. So if you're in an environment that says faith in Jesus is good plus baptism, that's the Galatian heresy right here. You say to me, those Jews, why don't they get the, with the program? Why don't you get with the program? It's the same doggone thing right there. Instead of circumcision, it's baptism. Baptism is beautiful. As an expression of salvation, not as the means of salvation. If it's the means of salvation, then you just put yourself under the whole law. And Christ is of no value to you. See how important it is? But look at it. If you think I'm getting lathered up in order to calm down, tell that to Paul. He wrote six chapters where he's venting his Jewish indignation about these people who are grace killers in Galatians. Okay. So here's what he says. He can hear footsteps right behind him. They're the footsteps of his critics who are saying, Paul, you who are preaching uh, that people don't need to live by the law of Moses to be saved, you're preaching lawlessness. And he is essentially saying, no way. Circumcision, all that stuff doesn't mean anything. But faith, notice, working through love. Not just faith, a statement. The kind of faith that manifests itself with love for 
God, the one who saves, and love for people. That's what he's saying. He's saying the same thing in essence that James says. Faith without works is what? Dead. Now, the works don't save us, do they? The works authenticate our profession of faith. That's what it's saying. Paul's saying the same thing. He's not talking about some faith, utter some magical words, and then do what you want to do. No, no, no. Profession of sincere faith in Jesus the Savior for the totality uh, of the remission of our sins is real faith when there's evidence of it. What's the evidence of it? Faith working through love. That's what he's saying right there. Now, verse 7, you were running well. He's using an athletic analogy, world of sport. They were familiar with it. Olympic Games, Greek, track and field. He's essentially saying you're in the starting blocks. You're getting ready to run the 100-yard dash. There's six other people right over here. The key thing is stay in your lane. When the starter's gun goes off, you cross over to someone else's lane. You trip them up. Who did that to you? That's what he's saying. You got off to a good start, and then someone got in your lane. Who was it who got in your lane? So he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, I don't think Paul is asking because he doesn't know. I think he knows. It's the Judaizers doing it. Well, then why does he ask the question? So that they can answer it. He's essentially saying, whose voices are you now listening to and why? Are they credible voices? Do they have the marks of salvation? Do they have the joy and peace of salvation? Why are you listening to them? Who's tripping you up? And then he says in verse 8, well, I'll tell you one thing. This persuasion didn't come from him who calls you. It's not the voice of God because God offered to you the fullness of salvation by his merits, not your own. So you're not getting this from God. And then he says, he used an athletic analogy in verse Seven, and now he used like a cooking, a baking analogy here in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So I don't bake. I barely know where the kitchen is. There, that's my wife right there nodding her head. And uh, leaven is like yeast, right? So if you put yeast in a mixture, what does it do? It rises. The, that's what's going on here. It's a figure of speech. You know what Paul is saying? So again, I don't know the baking thing, but I think I know what he's saying. A, a little bit of yeast r- causes the whole loaf to rise. You know what he's saying? I think he's saying a little bit of legalism in your life or in your church will spread like crazy. Because someone here might say, come on, Paul, stop making a big deal if getting circumcised is so important to him. What does it hurt? Let him. A little leaven leavens the whole dump. People living by works of the law and self-effort never do enough. They've got to keep adding to it. And then they use it as badges of honor. So you dress a certain way, and if other people don't dress the way you do, you use that as a barometer of their spirituality. Certain people wear head covering. Certain people don't. Certain people wear pants. Some people don't. So you, yeah. I was in one church. I'm not lying to you. And they... Refuse to use a, uh, what's the material? These clear plastic things we, we use for, what do they call that? What'd you say? Oh, um, not a wooden pulpit, it's a plexiglass. This church saw a plexiglass pulpit to be a sign of spiritual drift. 
and a thing, an inanimate object. So everyone in their church who stood behind like the, the block, the wooden thing, they were at a higher level of spiritual. That's what happens when you're adding to the merits of Christ with your own stuff, even though it doesn't use whatever kind of block of wood you want to. It doesn't matter. But it gets elevated too high. You think this is getting you favor with God, and those who don't do it have his disfavor. That's the way it is. Listen, don't talk to me about this. I come out of Judaism. Holy moly. You talk about a grading system with regard to what you do or don't do, what you eat or don't eat, all this kind of, all this kind of stuff. A little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. Of, I hope if anything like this ha- ever happened in this church, we got enough Pauls who don't worry about being politically correct and who go start going crazy. And knowing this will spread around here. Listen, our boast is in the cross, period. Not in our, the cross in a plexiglass pulpit. Come on. Or women wearing their hair up or this. Uh, you can actually see people like this walking around. Now, they're free. You, you style your hair any way you want to. But to use it as a barometer of other people's spirituality, that's the Galatian heresy. I'll tell you what divides humankind. It's not our hairstyles. It's those who have Christ and those who do not. That's it. So verse nine, verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord. You see, this is another reason why I tell you he's not speaking to those who lost their salvation. You don't say that to unsaved people. He's speaking to saved Galatians. I have confidence in you in the Lord. Unsaved people are not in the Lord. I have confidence you in the Lord. You will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So you know what Paul is saying? Whoever's tripping you up with false teaching, contrary to grace, is going to have to give account to Almighty God. And Paul is essentially saying, bring it on. This is really serious. What Jesus painfully offered his life for cannot be minimized or denigrated and the person doing it think they can get away with it. When Jesus said, it is finished, and you say, not entirely, you better answer to, you're going to answer to his father. Now get verse 11. I'm going to try to explain this. I'll read it and explain it. You tell me if the explanation makes sense. I, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So what's happening there? Paul was not against circumcision. He was circumcised as a Jew. He had Timothy circumcised. He never told young Jewish couples who had Jewish male babies that they shouldn't circumcise them on the eighth day. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. Didn't save a, a soul was a sign of covenant. Just like baptism doesn't save a soul. It's a sign that someone has entered into new relationship with the Savior. So Paul was still practicing circumcision. Now, here's what the Judaizers did. They used it against him. And they said to the Galatian Gentile believers, they said, Paul, your man, is still promoting circumcision. Therefore, why are you upset with us when we do? You should be circumcised. That's in keeping with what Paul is preaching. Well, they got it wrong. Paul was 
definitely in favor of circumcision as we should be in favor of baptism, but never as a means of salvation. The Judaizers were saying you have to be circumcised to be saved. Some people say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Paul was saying, no, these are external signs of an internal transformation that has taken place. So his preaching of circumcision was not like theirs at all. And here's the evidence of it. They were using this against him, you see, to persuade the Galatians to be circumcised. But Paul said, if they're right, and I'm preaching circumcision as being necessary for salvation, why are they still persecuting me? Why are they still beating up on me if I've gone over to their side, if I'm persuaded they're right, faith in Jesus is not enough, the cross is not enough, then why are they still persecuting me? He said, because if that's the case, the cross, a stumbling block, would no longer be a stumbling block. The stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. But he's saying, it hasn't been abolished. They're still stumbling over the cross. By the way, see the phrase stumbling block? One word in Greek. You want to know what it is? Scandalon. What does that sound like? Scandalous. The cross is a scandal to those who are working for their own salvation. Why? Because the cross says, no can do. The cross is saying, work all you want. It's not going to make it. You need a sin substitute. Well, this flies in the face of human pride. It causes people to stumble. The insinuation that our sin is so part and parcel of who we are. I can't overcome it in my own nature. I need someone to die for me to pay the penalty of sin. I can't come up with enough good stuff to get God to back off and give me some good grades, that is a scandal to prideful religious people. That's why world religion stinks. Mine does and yours does. Now, why should I just take a hit and let you go scot-free? Any religion, Judaism, Catholicism, Buddhism, Baptistism, whatever, I couldn't get an ism out of it, They all essentially say, Jesus is not enough. The cross is a stumbling block. You have to add to to it by baptism, in some cases as an infant, or or, uh, by church membership, or by sacraments, or by this, or by that. None of these things are bad things. They become bad when they're added to the formula of salvation, which can only be Jesus alone. Faith in Christ alone can't be anything, anything else. And so uh, Paul is saying, this is crazy what they're saying. Yes, I promote circumcision. If he was alive today, he could say, yes, I promote baptism, but not for the same reason they do. I don't do it as an additive for salvation. I do it as an evidence of salvation. It's a big, big difference right there. Okay, now verse 12 gets really graphic. So if you think the Bible is boring, my guess is you will not when we get finished with verse 12. Now let me remind you before we read it and get into it, I didn't write it. (laughs) We're just reading it. This is God's word. Here we go. I wish, Paul is speaking, that those who are troubling you, troubling the Galatians, would even mutilate themselves. Now, I ask you, who are reading out of different translations, what do you have? 
emasculate themselves. In fact, the word mutilate in Greek is better translated castrate. So therefore, we can read Paul's words. I wish that those who are troubling you would even castrate themselves. By the way, now I guess I am glad we're not using a plexiglass pulpit. <laughs> feel a little safer back here if you know what I mean. That's what it says right there. Now, what's going on? I'm not trying to get Paul off the hook. This is inspired scripture. Just explain what he's saying. I think he's saying this. If the Judaizers are saying that circumcision gets them points with God unto salvation, why don't they just go all the way and cut the whole thing off? Don't be mad at me. That's what he's saying, folks. <laughs> circumcision deals with the tip of the foreskin. Why trifle there? Get rid of the whole thing. That's what he's saying. A little bit of sarcasm, I would say. But he's dead serious. Why stop short of full-out mutilation if that's what you think it takes to get God's attention and win his favor and that Jesus is not enough? Now, I want to mention something else to you. Nearby Galatia was a place called Phrygia and other little municipalities. And they had a cult in these places. Uh, and it was based on the worship of a female, uh, of a goddess, and her name was Sibella, Sibella. And I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but that, that's what her name was, Sibella. C-Y-B-E, I think it's L-L-E, Sibella, the Sibylline cult, they call it, whatever. She had priests, and the priests of Sibella, to show their devotion to her, would castrate themselves. I'm certain the Galatians were familiar with this cult because it was right there. Not only that, I think there's a possibility some were members of it prior to knowing Christ. Paul is essentially saying to the Judaizers, if you think you need to do some stuff in addition to what God has done to win his favor, then why not do as an at least as much as the priests of Sabella are doing. They castrated themselves. Why don't you do it too? And at least show that your devotion to your God is at least as great as their devotion to theirs. That's kind of what's going on there. So that's some strong words. So if you're looking for your next verse of Scripture to memorize, <laughs> so verse 13 he says, you were called to freedom, brethren, for you were called to freedom. Because people might say, Paul, why are you saying what you said in verse 12? And here's his answer, for you were called to freedom. He is so lathered up about those who are threatening the spiritual freedom of these Galatians that he used the graphic language he did in verse 12. He said, I'm justified in doing it because you were called not to do all this crazy stuff. You were called to freedom. In this, he is essentially repeating what we read in verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, when we went through that, we spoke about freedom from what? Again, thinking about the three aspects of salvation. I think it's freedom from the penalty of sin and then I think it's freedom from the power of sin and then I think one day it'll be even freedom from the presence of sin that's what Christ has set us free furthermore he set us free from having to work from our salvation for our salvation you know what a drag that is I mean you never know when you've done enough 
So Paul says, you've been set free. But no, once again, he hears the footsteps of his critics behind him. He anticipates their criticism. They're going to accuse him of lawlessness and uh, licentiousness. License to do what you want to do. Amen. Listen, if it's all about God's grace, then sin all the more so that he can be even more gracious to you. That's kind of what's going on. Now, Paul hears this. So first he says, you were called to freedom, brother. Now, look, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Once again, he's saying this. Uh, you, you have been set free <laughs> from the penalty of your sin. You've been set free from sin. But you have not been set free to sin. Big difference. He's saying you used to be obligated to the flesh. But that's why Paul himself one time said, remember he said, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. And what I should not do, I do. And then he says, who, not what, who shall set me free? And he answers his own question. But thanks be to God, through Judaism, through Catholicism, through baptism, through belonging to Sagemont Church, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. It's about a person. It's not about a religion. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. Christ set him free. So what he's saying is, no, you don't understand. You're not free to sin. Now you're free to serve. In, uh, prior to salvation, you served you. You were a narcissistic, egotistical, self-centered jerk. That's who you are. That's who I am. Christ set us free. And now in the power of his Holy Spirit, we have the capacity to get outside of ourselves more than ever. Serve others. And so he says, it's for freedom Christ set us free. Don't let your freedom be an opportunity for the flesh. On the contrary, through love, serve one another. That's what he's saying. We're now set free to serve. So Paul has given a warning about legalism, one L to be avoided. Now he's given kind of a statement about another L to be avoided, licentiousness. But he's uplifting the good L, liberty. Christ set us free. Christianity is liberty, freedom from fear of where we are with God, freedom from works righteousness. Freedom from the penalty, power, and presence of our sin. Christ set us free. That's what he's talking about. Just don't misuse your, don't misuse your freedom. And then he goes on to say, we'll finish with this verse, for the whole law. Now, folks, he's talking here about the law of Moses. You know about it, Ten Commandments, but the rabbis have identified 613 based on those ten. So you're talking about all that's in Exodus, Leviticus, all that stuff. The whole law is fulfilled, he says, in one word. It's actually a statement. The statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) How could the whole law be fulfilled in that one statement, love your neighbor as yourself? It's easy. If you love your neighbor, you won't be stealing against your neighbor's stuff. If you love your neighbor, you won't be lying to your neighbor. You love your neighbor, you won't be coveted. What's your neighbor's and not yours? If you love your neighbor, you won't do anything to hurt your neighbor. Don't you see? In so doing, you are fulfilling the law. On the other hand, in fact, could I read this to you? Uh, Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Same writer, Paul. 
Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And you see, that's what Paul is saying. Now, is he saying love for neighbor must take precedence over love for God? He's not saying that at all. Why did he talk about love for God? It is presumed if you, having been loved by God first, have accepted his unbelievably loving gift of salvation, you love him back. But how do you love God? Tell me. You haven't seen him and neither have I. How are you going to express your love to God? Are you going to give him a tie? What do you have that God, I mean, what does God lack? So here's what God says. If you want to express your love for me, love your neighbor. That's how good God is. He said, I have everything. Love those around you. That's what he's saying. And if you do that, you'll fulfill the whole law. So this is not someone saying, I will be nice to people around me and thus earn my salvation. No, this is someone saying, because my salvation has been provided for me by God's grace through faith, by way of gratitude, I want to take care of the others whom God has given life to, saved people and unsaved people. It pleases God when I treat the people around me in the way he has treated me. That's all he's saying. It's not that, it's not that, complicated, not that complicated a deal. So here's the deal, folks. <clears throat> the Christian who is struggling with assurance, the Christian who is suffer, struggling with Assurance is, I understand the non-Christian, the, the non-Christian who, who doubts his or her salvation ought to. <laughs> They're not saved. The Christian who is saved but still doubts it. Uh, read Galatians. Stay in the atmosphere of grace. Don't fall from grace. Don't think you've got to add to it in order to appease God, your father. Your father, Abba God, is not like your earthly dad. By the way. Nobody calls God Abba, Daddy, except you, a believer. Jewish people don't refer to God as Abba. Jesus did, and you can, because he built a bridge between you and his father. You can say Daddy. You can say Papa. He's not your distant dad. He doesn't sit on his big high back dining room table and ask you to give an account for your day. He says, come on and crawl up on my lap. Yeah, but Abba, I haven't washed. Nah, don't worry about it. I'll take you smudges and all. That's your father. He's the perfect dad nobody ever had. Don't make him like your earthly dad. Don't make him like your stepdad. He's different. He's categorically different. Our father who art in heaven, not on earth. Our father who art in heaven. Totally different perspective. You know what our challenge is as Christians? We've been born again. We got phase one figured out. Well, a born-again infant now has to grow. We'll grow. That's what we're doing. We're being reparented. You ought to read the Bible as a parenting book written by your father. Reparenting. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Come to me when you're weary or heavy laden. I'll give you rest. 
You may not have heard those things from a significant other in your life in human form, but I'm telling you, you're hearing it from your Heavenly Father. He did not just save us from the penalty of sin. He saved us from depression and despair and uh, and feeling lost and unloved. He saved us from rejection. He'll never give us a... I'll never leave you or forsake you. What shall separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Paul writes a list of things in Romans 8, in case he left anything out. He says, nor any created thing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Get enveloped. Don't fall from grace. Saved by grace. Sanctified by grace. Justified by grace. He didn't just save you from the penalty of sin. He saved you from your feelings of being inadequate and of no value and of no worth and all the rest. He took you uh, with failing grades. You had nothing. You didn't have any A's on your report card. Could I tell you something? God is never disappointed with you. I'll tell you why I say that. Disappointment means you had an expectation of someone that was not fulfilled. And you got disappointed. But God does not have any unrealistic expectations of us. (laughs) Therefore, he doesn't get disappointed. God doesn't say, oh, I expected more of you. He knew you were a slouch. (laughs) He's not surprised by your slouchness at all. He took you just the way you are. And he's changing you, not by decree, not by threat, but by internal renovation. He puts his spirit in us. How could you be inhabited by the king above all kings and it not show? Little by little through time. That's what we're in right now. And then suddenly, boom, just as we got saved like that in an instant, we are glorified in an instant. The presence of sin is eradicated and we look into the eyes of Almighty God in whose presence we couldn't stand right now. We look into the presence of Almighty God and not only are we not consumed by the fire of His holiness, we're drawn to it. It doesn't consume us, it warms us up because He's our Father, the likes of which we never had before. And like Paul said, by the Spirit through faith, we have the hope of that kind of right standing with God when we come before him one day. Hope, no doubts, no insecurity. Now, if that's you, here's what I would do. I would say, get thee behind me, Satan. Whose voices are you listening to? Who's tripping you up? Who's getting in your lane? Paul says, well, that's not coming from God. So if I was you, I would replace that stuff. I love verses like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are baptized, (laughs) circumcised, castrated. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I was you, I'd go on a hunt for therapeutic pearls like that that show you what your new status is as a Christian right now. And I would, uh, I would say, oh, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Not salvation. If you got it, it doesn't need to be restored. It doesn't go away. But the joy of your salvation, that's another thing. If I was you, I'd pray that. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. Thank you for Galatians, because their situation is ours. It applies. Everything in the Bible applies. Human nature is the same, and your nature is the same. 
Thank you for setting us free, free to love you, to respond to you, to figure out what pleases you instead of ourselves. Free to please you by serving others. Thank you for all that. We're grateful. We still tie into the flesh, Lord Jesus, but even then we lose nothing except opportunities. We don't lose your favor and your love and your concern and your salvation. Missed opportunities, that's it. And then you give us the opportunity because we're free to turn from our sin, accept your forgiveness, and press on just as if we had not sinned. Thank you, O God, for the atmosphere of grace in which you have us. And I pray we would listen to no voice that causes us to remove ourselves from it. We will not fall from salvation, nor do we want to fall from your grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name, the God of all grace. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time.